Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for July 1st, 2018. Today's podcast is a guest sermon given by Tim Moore, who served as pastor at Sardis Baptist Church for 19 years. His sermon today is entitled, Sexual Freedom. Scripture, that erotic poetry was a little different 2,300 years ago. Few of us in the 21st century would be turned on by the description of a lover whose hair was like a flock of goats (laughs) and whose teeth are like a flock of lambs, although I love the phrase which said all of her teeth were twins and not one of them was bereaved. Did you get that? I mean, being sexy today is all about showing skin. Evidently, back then, if you found a young lover with a full set of teeth, that was something. (laughs) Now, I can't make fun of the whole book. If you take time to read it, you will come across several passages that will raise your eyebrows, and if you get some euphemisms, maybe even make you blush. When the female lover says she longed for her lover's hand to be under her head and his right arm to embrace her. Well, that translates into any age in any language. This is a book in the Bible that solely focuses on the sexual intimacy of two young lovers. What makes it more radical is that they are not married. And they are not having sex to procreate. This is a sexual affair between two young people in love whose interactions are for the solely for their enjoyment. The sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s had nothing on these two. The sexual freedom of our postmodern Western lifestyles could actually learn something from these two. In my forthcoming book, Practicing Midrash, I call the Song of Songs a counter-testimony of Israel's faith. Like Ecclesiastes and Job, though in a very different way, the Song of Songs calls into question the religious teachings of ancient Israel regarding sexuality in general, and in the restrictions on women in particular. In a similar way, just as the song questioned the religious teachings of Israel's faith as it had been, because it is part of the canon, it also calls into question Christianity's faith to come. In the first of our brief passages that we read, the young woman is on a hunt for her lover. This is not some fly-by-night hookup. She is looking for whom my soul loves. It is as deep an expression of love as she can express. 
despite the constraints of living in a patriarchal society where women were controlled by the men in their lives, fathers, husbands, sons, brothers. She is the aggressor here. She is hunting down her lover. She goes about the city, into the streets, into the squares. At times, young, unaccompanied women should not be out. Not surprisingly, her family does not approve. Passages in chapters 1 and 8, the beginning and the ending of the story, reveal that her brothers are angry with her. Perhaps she had to go out hunting for her lover because he was banned from coming to their house. They do not think she is ready for a relationship. They still see her as a little girl, not yet matured, while she identifies as a mature woman capable and determined to make her own choices about love and lovers. Chapter 5 finds her on the hunt once again seeking her lover. This time, the town's night watchmen do not approve of her being out alone late at night, unaccompanied. They beat her up to teach her a lesson. Renita Weems, the biblical professor at Vanderbilt, notes her torn clothing and questions if this is a sign that they raped her as well. If she was out late at night looking for a man, maybe she's one of those kind of women. We'll teach her about that. We cannot know for certainty from the poetry what happened. But she experienced trauma of some kind nonetheless. And whatever restraints her family places on her, none of these stop her. She is undaunted. Her pursuit of her lover will not be denied. Phyllis Tribble, the groundbreaking feminist biblical theologian, concludes that she is completely independent, fully equal to her male lover in the book. In the meditation quoted in your worship guide, she says, although at times he approaches her, more often she initiates their meetings her movements are bold and open at night in the streets and on the public squares. Not only does she independently seek him whom her soul loves, but more importantly for us, I think, she is the only woman in the Bible to speak through her writing. She is the poet. She is the one who tells a story. Her male lover, also, male lover also speaks in the text, but he is always speaking about her. Her voice tells the story of their relationship. Her voice tells the story of what happens in all these other relationships around her. Her words tell the story. This is the only place in the Bible, where a woman's voice tells the story. 
for that alone. We should listen to her. The restrictions placed upon women by the Mosaic law, by local custom, and by the New Testament to come, she tears them all up. She will not be restrained by them. She will not be restrained by religious tradition, by family, or by self-appointed guardians of moral behavior. This is her counter-testimony. You can see why the church didn't want people to read this as a love poetry between two lovers. It is a seditious book. It wasn't just the sex that made it a dangerous book. It was the independence and the boldness of this young woman speaking without restraint and acting upon her desires. Here's a little interesting fact for you about the book. During the Middle Ages, would you care to guess which book in the Bible was most read in all male monasteries? That's right, the Song of Songs, a book barely read today, 1,000 years ago, was the most popular book among celibate monks. I don't know about you, but I'm not thinking they were meditating on Christ's love for the church. Like I said, dangerous. Phyllis Tribble was one of the first, if not the first, of several biblical scholars to think the Song of Songs represents a counter-testimony or a reversal of the ending of the Eve and Adam story. If you remember that mythic tale, how it ended after the couple ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, each suffer consequences from eating the forbidden fruit. Eve is told that in labor she will give birth. Furthermore, her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. Adam is also told that in labor he will bring forth food from the field. But as his relationship with his wife Nothing more is said about the relationship. So the second creation story, the Eve and Adam story, ends with her desiring him and him ruling over her. It is an unbalanced, distorted relationship. And its ending has been used to defend male patriarchy for almost 3,000 years. But the song, has another ending, one which the church has not been so willing to tell. As we read in those brief passages from chapter 4, he desires her. Not only has she been on the street searching for him, desiring him as the ancient story said so, but likewise, he desires her. Their love is mutual. And it is quite clear, he does not rule over her. 
They are equal, one to the other. No one, in fact, in the story rules over this woman. You can tell that for sure. Their mutual love makes them partners, one with the other, as the first humans were created to be. That Eve and Adam's partnership was ruined by forbidden fruit is the old story. The poet in the Song of Song declares this is the new story. This is how the story is supposed to end. That through love, mutual partnerships grow between lovers. The way Adam and Eve were supposed to be to each other is the way that these two lovers are to each other. The mutuality of these two lovers is the most sustained expression of partnership in the whole Bible. So when Ephesians and Colossians and the pastoral letters of Timothy and Titus use their words to give men the authority over women and to tell women to be quiet, this one dissents. Not so fast, she declares. Real love, she says, becomes a mutual partnership. Real love repairs the distortion that happened in the Garden of Eden. Real love is never about ruling over. It is always being in partnership with. Subversive. Look. In offering these counter-testimonies to both Israel's faith as it had been and Christianity's faith to come, the song asks us to question tradition, to back off from being too sure of ourselves, to allow doubt to inform faith, which according to Wendell Berry offers the beginning of wisdom. You will see this quote also in your worship guide. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. What can this text, these holy words, say to us today? What are we missing when we don't read this book in the Bible? Maybe in earlier days, its testimony about sexual freedom was once needed. But I think our Western postmodern society has just about knocked down all the barriers of sexual repression. Maybe not all, but most. We live in an age with so much sexual expression that we cannot tell where sexual freedom ends and sexual exploitation begins. The hashtag MeToo movement is rapidly changing the conversation about sexual harassment, which is good news. But at the same time, pornography is more prevalent than in any time in history and is so frequented by young men and young adults 
that young men are now seeking prescriptions for Viagra from their physician because they have problems becoming aroused in an actual human relationship. Sexual repression is no longer our general problem. Though maybe the lover's embrace of forbidden love still has something to say about marriage equality and other ways where love is not simply allowed to be loved. The woman longs for the day when her love for her lover can be expressed publicly and before her family. That's a longing too many still have. The mutual partnership between these two lovers could also have something to add to the Me Too movement. The sex and the poetry is always seen between two equals. It is not taken by one with power from one with less power. In addition, that mutuality has something else to say to conservative evangelical Christians and even to us mainline liberals who don't always get in the heart what our head says. All of these things can be good takeaways from today, but that's not what I think we are missing. We do not read this text as part of our Bible. This is a very body-focused text. Both lovers are free to speak of each other's body and of their own with a comfortableness that does not come easy to us. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. Body shaming because we do not look like airbrushed, photoshopped models. Too fat, too skinny, too hairy, too pale. Aging that makes us shy from the mirror because we do not look like we once did or like we once imagined we did which haunts us with the fleeting feeling of life. Regret that disease or injury or bad DNA robbed us of a body that does not work like most bodies. Or maybe we are not comfortable talking about or thinking about our bodies because it is these bodies these growing, maturing, sexual, hormonal, needy, aging bodies that are constantly reminding us that we are mortal. We have minds that can reach the outer limits of the universe billions of light years away, yet bodies that will never leave this blue floating sphere in the universe. We have souls that long for the eternal, yet bodies that will decay as surely as everything else on this planet. We long to hear or see or touch the divine, but like this poet, never audibly hear the voice of God. If you haven't noticed, God is silent in the song. But the song reminds us that all of our life experience is connected to our bodies. 
when the woman says she seeks him whom her soul loves, the word is about God-breathed being. The eternal things are connected to bodily things. Sex, for instance, is never separated from love in the poetry. For nervous parents, this is one thing you can take to your kids about from the story, right? This unnamed woman poet declares that his love is as strong as death, passion as fierce as the grave. Love is like a raging fire. Many waters cannot quench love, nor floods drown it. Sex is all over the book. But she didn't say sex is as strong as death or that many waters cannot quench sex. No, it's the power of love that is unstoppable. Sex between lovers is a celebration that connects the two. This mortal body, these mortal bodies, Growing, dying, maturing, aging, sexual, hormonal, needy, connect us to the powers beyond our physical experience. Love, justice, God. These mortal bodies connect us to the eternal. Maybe that's why even God wanted to become like us. For in Jesus, the eternal God connects to the mortal. If one offered love for all the wealth of one's house, you would be utterly scorned. Indeed. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.